Grab your Bibles and uh, open them to the book of Nehemiah, and let's resume our study of that. And um, uh, while you're looking, I just uh, I would love to tell you something about the nomination process that just ended yesterday, nomination for elders. But it just ended yesterday, and that's the problem. Um, I want you to know that you, as a congregation, did your did your job awfully well. Uh, you have nominated a. Um, a significant list of people for the office of elder. But the problem that I have in making announcements yet is that um, some of those men may need to pray through whether they want to accept their nomination. So, so we're somewhat, um, we have to wait. So it'll maybe be a week or so before I get back with you with a list of nominees for the office of elder. So uh, th- that's where that is. Okay. Um, Guys, I, I don't know how much you know of the, uh, the book of Nehemiah. You know that he goes back to um, Jerusalem for the purpose of building a wall. And I, and I bet at least, if you don't know it already, you can at least guess that eventually he does get the wall built. Um, but um, before he gets that wall built, he has to navigate um, some some seriously troubled waters to ever arrive at his goal. Um, I I told you last week that this story of Nehemiah, it it is not a fairy tale. It's a true story about how a sovereign God uses uses flawed men um, who, the flawed men, face um, enormous difficulties, but who ultimately get the job done and all the while pointing us to Christ, who is, of course, the north star of our hermeneutic. Everything uh, about interpreting the Bible should, should point us to Christ. So um, let, let, me kind of, let me kind of bring you up to date as to where we are in the story before, before we proceed further, okay? So if you've got your, your Bibles open to the, book, to the story... You'll recall, I hope, that um, verses 11 through 16 of chapter 2 is where Nehemiah does all of his due diligence. You know, he surveys the land and sees how bad things are and, you know, uh, makes a plan. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he, um, he challenges the Jewish audience to get together and build. They say, yay, let's build. In verse 19, the opposition, Sanballat and Tobiah, scoff and laugh, but um, they get going anyway. Um, and then chapter 3 is a, is a fairly lengthy chapter of nothing more than who built what where. <laughs> it tells you what persons build what wall at what point in the wall. And then you come to chapter 4, um, and we're told in verse 6 that, he, uh, that the wall gets built up to half its height. Now, it's not done, but it's up to half its height in spite of opposition. That gets done in fairly short order, um, which all kind of, sort of, leads us to um, chapter 5. Um, and in chapter 5, lo and behold... Um, as if Sanballat and Tobiah were not enough, this poor guy, Nehemiah, gets slapped upside the head 
by a very serious issue. It's a huge issue. Um, and, and, and the issue that he faces does not come from Sanballat and Tobiah. It comes from the inside, which is what chapter 5 is all about. Now, guys, I have tried to find ways to shorten uh, what I read to you this morning from chapter 5. I've tried to pick out some verses that I could eliminate. I can't. It's a vignette. It's, a, it's an episode in the overall story. So I've got to read you the whole thing. 19 verses, which I don't normally read that much, as I, I think you will know. But um, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through 19. To tell this part of the story, an episode in the story uh, known as the book of Nehemiah. Are you ready? And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our land and vineyards, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been bought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what are you doing? What, what you are doing is not good. Should you not, walk, should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves. And their houses also a hundredth of the money and the grain of the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the time time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them their bread, took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not 
do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep and also fowl were prepared for me and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, it it endures forever. Apparently, when um, Nehemiah had done his due diligence, that his uh, due diligence had been somewhat inadequate in that um, there was a problem that existed that he didn't find, that he didn't unearth. So here they are working happily on the wall, trying to get this wall built, and all of a sudden, wham! He gets knocked upside the head by a, he discovers a problem that existed long before he arrived. There was sin, serious sin in that camp. Unbeknownst to Nehemiah, there was a huge division among God's people, which, um, which had festered over the years. It was a social justice issue. The rich abusing the poor issue. And and to make it worse, it was God's people abusing God's people. So gang, what good is a wall when your problems are on the inside? What good is a wall going to be in the fight when the fight is on the inside of the wall? Let, let me just show you a couple of the details of just how ugly this thing was. Look at verse 1. Um, uh, a great outcry of the people and their wives. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, that itself is highly unusual. Women didn't speak out in this male-dominated culture. And they're not speaking out against sin, Baladin, and Tobiah. Notice in verse 1, they're speaking out against their brethren. The, the very idea that women are speaking out, that itself, ladies and gentlemen, shows you just how bad things are. And notice in verse 2, notice what the issue is. It's a small issue. We want to eat. That's a, not a big deal. We just want something to eat. Um, and then on Verse 3, on top of everything, and and perhaps the cause of the situation, was a famine. A famine mentioned in verse 3. 
but far worse than the famine, is that the rich had taken advantage of the famine to abuse the poor. <clears throat> now, did you notice, guys, <clears throat> these people 90 years ago, 90 years before this, had returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and they were loaded down with material goods. Where did all those material goods go? Well, a famine arose and the rich took advantage of the famine and forced the poor to mortgage their lands and their vineyards and yes, verse 5, their kids. <laughs> Did you notice in verse 5? We've sold our daughters into slavery. You know what that means, don't you? Guys, this is a story, this is the kind of story that you read in the Wall Street Journal. And, and, and by the way, there's one other issue. On top of all this, there's the taxes. The taxes not to, not to Nehemiah, but the taxes to the, to the king of Persia, mentioned in verse 4. So in, in, in view of the taxes that we couldn't pay, we mortgaged our lands, the, 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 the wealthy took, a, took advantage of us, and, and, and after the lands got mortgaged, we still couldn't pay it. So we sold our daughters into slavery. And now, even that hasn't worked. And we don't have anything to eat. <laughs> How pretty. Um, exploiting the poor for personal profit. Jew on Jew. And they even got our kids, our daughters. Um, all of which, ladies and gentlemen, as you may guess, are egregious violations of Jewish law. And it was all prompted by the desire to make money. Rampant greed. To the point that, whatever, I'm going to make some money off this. And, um, and so they abuse, in, in, in opposition to Jewish law, they ignore that, take advantage of the famine and the rich. Enslave the poor. What a mess. You know, as I read this um, weeks ago, I wondered, in the midst of all this crisis, where is, where's the priests? Why aren't the priests standing up and saying, this is against Jewish law? Why doesn't somebody stop these people? And it seems to me that the, that the most 
obvious ones to stop them would be the priest, but not a word. Not a word. <clears throat> Guys, <clears throat> their real enemy is not Sanballat and Tobiah. Their real enemy is not on the outside. Oh, no, no, no. It's on the inside. Both literally and spiritually. The problem that Nehemiah is facing is the sin that exists within this camp. Pardon me. All of which brings us to Nehemiah's response. Oh, do I ever love this. First of all, we're told in verse 6, I think, that Nehemiah is very angry. Now, wait wait, wait just a second here, Dr. Young. Uh, You know, I I thought you told us that Nehemiah was a godly man, and, and, you know... um, I I don't think that we Christians are supposed to be angry, are we? You bet your bippy we are. Moses was. He came down from that mountain with two tablets of stone and threw them and broke them into smithereens. And God never rebuked him for that. Exodus 32. Oh, but how about um, the story about Phineas? Um, Numbers chapter 25. Phineas, who speared two people to death because they were bad boys and girls. And Phineas was commended. And um, then there was Paul. Paul, who um, in Galatians chapter 1 is opposing this thing that wasn't the gospel and he, he told men, in essence, to go to hell because they were distorting the gospel. And then, of course, there was Jesus. Jesus angry? Guys, have you never read this? Um, Mark chapter 3, verse 5. And when he, Jesus, had looked around at them, with anger. Not to mention those times when he said, you brood of vipers. Or the time that he <coughs> cleansed the temple with a, a, a whip. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, there is a statement in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, that commands us to be angry. Yes. Anger is a dangerous emotion. When it is spawned by a jealousy like, like you see in Saul over his competition versus David, ugly stuff. But not when it's anger against sin. Not when the object of the anger is sin and the goal is God's glory. Ladies and gentlemen, There are times when you will be in sin if you're not angry.
How can you live in this culture and it not stir your righteous soul? When good is called evil and evil is called good. My wife was pointing out yesterday, as I was watching football, some of the commercials, and I think, we're not sure of this, but I think that Cadillac is now advertising their cars via a transgender emphasis. Am I the only one angry about that? Then shame on you. Look at it, ladies and gentlemen. When Nehemiah confronted sin in his camp, the first thing that we're told is that he was angry. Very angry. Second thing is verse 7, I think, where it says, And after considerable thought, now there's a novel concept, considerable thought, you know, he thought about it before he spoke. Boy, (laughs) maybe Dr. Young could learn a little bit of that, you know? Uh, but then, then after the considerable thought, Bazinga, he blasts them. You bunch of spiritual phonies. And um, after he is humiliated them publicly. Um, um, Specifically about what they've done. We're told in verse 8, they were silenced. Darn tootin' they were. You know what shut their mouth? Guilt. over what they had done. And then they say in verse 12, okay, we will repent. And then verse 13, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, this is why I love this guy. Do you see what he does in verse 13? He takes the folds of his garments in a highly dramatic act And he shakes out his garments. You see it? And he says, May God shake you out like this if you don't keep your promise. What promise? To repent. And so... Uh, We're told they keep their promise. As a result of all that, the people make Nehemiah their governor. That is, they they put him in charge. Um, And the rest of this chapter, uh, verses 14 through the end, is is a biographical sketch as to how he operated as governor. Now, by the way, could I just tangentially say this those commentaries that I mentioned last week that try to make this into a story about spiritual leadership they have the audacity to turn this little story into how to handle a promotion I'm just appalled but anyway the next verses from 14 to 19 is about 
It's, it's an autobiographical statement about how Nehemiah operated as the governor of the land that, is, that he's now governing. Now, gang, as a government official, you are allowed certain perks. Perks which are routinely uh, abused. Ladies and gentlemen, our newspapers are, are full of government officials abusing the perks. The most recent one is uh, Jesse Jackson Jr. and his wife both go to prison because they <coughs> misfit monies. But it's money, it's women, it's drugs, it's all kinds of stories about government officials abusing their, their position. Now, you, you will notice, I hope, um, that in this final section, verses 14 through 19, Noah, Nehemiah tells you that he never did any of that. But more importantly, he also tells you why. Um, it is true that these perks that government officials have are paid for by taxes extracted from the people. On top of the taxes, by the way, that is owed to the king of Persia. But we're told that Nehemiah didn't do any of that. And we're told in verse 18, or you're at least given a, a little hint in verse 18, he says, yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. He's got a real love for these people. And they're already burdened enough anyway. So I'm not... I'm not going to burden them anymore. But um, that wasn't his reason that he didn't take the taxes. Uh, then what was it? He tells you in verse 15. Yet even their servants bore rule over them, but I did not do so. Look at it. Because of the fear of God. <laughs> um, guys, I, I could fill up, fill up your afternoon talking about the fear of God. Um, I'm not going to do that. I think I've already done that in the Ecclesiastes series. You remember how the, how the book closes? Uh, the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and keep his commandments. I think we did it then. But to suffice it to say this much. Nehemiah feared men little because he feared God much. Ooh, doggy. Any of you controlled by the opinions of men about you? Any of you live in that kind of bondage where you're so afraid about what people are going to think about you? I can tell you how to get out of it. 
You fear men little when you fear God much. But when you fear God little, you fear man much. And ladies and gentlemen, if it is the con one of the controlling things of your moral and ethical living, it's because you do not fear God. You fear men more. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you, and I could defend it for the rest of the day, that the fear of God is a Christian virtue. Even Jesus Christ was a God-fearer, and I can prove that too if we had the time. But it is the fear of God that changed Nehemiah's behavior. Those previous governors did all of this, but I did not do that, says Nehemiah, because... Because of the fear of God. Now let me illustrate my point. I think I have used this illustration before. I'm sorry. But I'm, I'm simply trying to illustrate the point that the one thing that will change your behavior is this fear of God thing. Are you ready? I think I've told you this before, but let's just, let's just imagine that you as a parent are trying to speak to your children, uh, your son, uh, about sexual purity. And you go to your son, and you say, now, son, uh, you need to maintain sexual purity. And uh, being the little twit that he is, he looks at his dad, and he says, why? And you say, um, well, now, son, uh, you know, uh, if, if, you don't, uh, man, if you don't maintain sexual purity, I mean, you might end up with an unwed pregnancy. And your son looks back at you, and he says, uh, dad, um, there are all kinds of ways to terminate pregnancies. Oh, oh, yeah, well, I don't like that. But, you know, okay, okay. But, son, uh, uh, you might end up with a, a sexually transmitted disease. Dad, do you not know of all the drugs that are available for those things? Oh, I, I, I see what you're saying there, son. Uh, uh, okay, uh, but, uh, but, son, um, um, your friends will think ill of you if you do that. Hey, Dad. My friends will think ill of me if I do what you say. Oh. All right, son, well, you should maintain sexual purity because of, of, of the shame that it will bring on your mom and dad. And he says, Dad, I'm sorry to tell you this. But do you know whose opinion matters to me now? It ain't yours or mom's, and it hasn't been for years. Then what's left? What's left, ladies and gentlemen, as a motive to maintain any kind of morality? It's the same motive that was behind Nehemiah's not taking his perks. I didn't do it because of the fear of God. It worked for Joseph when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. Remember that? Ladies and gentlemen, the God who is, 
And the God who made us and made the heavens and the earth, the God who um, reveals himself in this book, he tells me certain things that I'm not supposed to do. And that's supposed to be enough. You see, Nehemiah says, I didn't do all that because I I love this people. But beyond my loving these people, I live for the glory of God. And because of the glory of God and the good of this people, I left the, the cushy job of bartender for the king in Persia. I left all the perks of the palace. I left all those behind and came here, not to be served, but to serve. Now, let me summarize. This is a man, Nehemiah, This is a man who gets angry over sin and rebukes it. This is a man who calls people to repent. This is a man who, after that repentance, is put in charge. This is a man whose life is lived in the fear of God. This is a man who loved these people. And this is a man who left the king's palace to come serve. What does that remind you of? Anybody? But ladies and gentlemen, I want you to notice... Just so you won't mistake who this is about. This chapter closes with a 19th verse where he says, Oh God, remember me. God, I need, I need you. I'm not the hero of this story. I can only point to him. God, I need you. Remember me. Now let me say a quick word about this remember word, a quick something about this remember word and we're done. Guys, remember me. Gang, um... That is a word that has nothing to do with mental recall. It is not as if God was thinking, oh, well, I almost forgot that Nehemiah fellow down there. (laughs) I'm glad he reminded me because I didn't, you know, I didn't remember him. Gang, that's not what that is about. Um, To explain, do you remember the story of Noah and the ark? 
the animals and the people on the ark and all the water and the flood and yada, yada, yada. And, and here they are floating around out there. And Genesis chapter 8 verse 1 opens this way. Then God remembered Noah. Do you think he lost memory of Noah? No, no. Gang, this is a Hebrew expression. It has nothing to do with mental recall, but it has to do with action that is based on a previous commitment. And when when Nehemiah says, remember me, he is saying, God, I need you to take action on my behalf based on promises that you previously gave me. God, I need you to act on my behalf. These people don't need me. These people need the same one that I need. God, I need you to act on our behalf based on previous promises that you've made to us. And here is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. He has. God has acted on our behalf based on previous promises that he gave to us. All of that action on our behalf consummated in the one to whom Nehemiah can only point. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has acted on our behalf based on previous promises that he gave us. Do you know him, ladies and gentlemen? Do you know Jesus Christ as the Savior and ruler of your life? Is Christ your Savior? Is your sin forgiven? Are you on your way to heaven? If not, today would make a great day to start that journey. Come to Christ. Come to Christ now. Our Father, I pray that you will show your people the great beauty of the gospel as we see it being depicted in this and every other story. And Father, um, we could pray Remember us. But those of us who know the Lord Jesus know that you already have remembered us. You've remembered us and sent a Savior to die in our place. So, Father, would you you make him real to every person in this room? To those who are here who have not yet embraced this beautiful Savior, might they embrace him now? Do that, Father. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.